One second, I'm going to let her out. Let the dog out. Get out, dog. This isn't a 90s disaster movie episode. This is a Cronenberg. You don't want to be in this episode, dog. Jesus Christ, dog. You disintegrated Einstein. Disintegrated Einstein. Einstein. Welcome to Science at the Movies, a podcast that looks at the role of science in some of our best loved and most hated movies. I'm Abby. I'm Frida. And this week's movie is The Fly. Sly. I, I almost want to just get straight into the movie and not even talk about anything else. But because I'm, I'm like holding on to all these, these thoughts. But oh, okay, because I have to ask, yeah. how the hell are you? Yay! <laughs> I'm good. I'm okay. It's it's like uh, you just said before we started recording. It's suddenly 28 degrees here. It is fucking winter here, man. It snapped. It's like suddenly mm. freezing and it's raining and it's horrible. But um, I'm cozied up at home. This is my weekend where I just get to like chill and relax because I have my first day of my new PhD on Monday. What? You start your PhD on yes. Monday. Yes. For those of you it's who don't so know, I met Frida while doing a PhD in Australia that after a year I was like, yeah, maybe not. And I came back to the UK. So I started a new one on Monday because I'm a fucking glutton for punishment like an idiot. <laughs> Well, yeah, that's one way of putting it. Um, Well, I think PhDs are actually the best time because you don't have the the pressure that comes with the postdoc and everything after. You can actually just science in peace. (laughs) I'm going to rock up on Monday going, guys, I'm here to science in peace. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's obviously if you have an excellent supervisor. Which not everybody does, yeah. but I did. Yeah. I had the I had the best, and it was heaven. Yeah, um, but I'm excited about this movie in terms of this whole like kind of sciencey stuff. Also, I'm excited about it's a quantum physicist. Hello, <laughs> <laughs> quantum. We're gonna get quantum on ya. It's gonna get quantum in here. It's gonna be a throwback to oh, yeah. uh, four weeks ago episode where we rolled our eyes at Schrodinger's cat. Here we actually have a chance. <laughs> It's our chance. <laughs> All right, go on. Go on then. Well, sorry, how are you? <laughs> Who, me? You can tell me how you are. You can just do the summary. It's your choice. <laughs> well, 28 degrees, beautiful and sunny. That's nice. It's nice to have that little part of the year where the weather's nice and warm before the fires start. So it's nice to be in this part of the year and not in that part of the year where we pretend that that part of the year isn't coming towards us. Yeah. Well, hurtling. Let's towards. get into it then. <laughs> <laughs> Super cheery conversation. Australian wildfires. Now let's talk about the fly. <laughs> <laughs> so the week that this is being released is, of course, what Abby? Halloween. Halloween, and it comes at the end of our. Is it at the end? Have we finished our slasher? No, we've got or we one left. Going on to next week. Happy Death Day next, next week. week. Yeah. Last last week was um, Halloween, and so in continuing the theme, we're doing an an extra um, scary movie this week for Halloween. 
and it is David Cronenberg's The Fly. Let I'm gonna <laughs> I've got a summary of this movie, The Fly from 1986, the year I was born. So it is 34 years old. Okay, because that's how old I am. It was <laughs> good math. It was. Thank you. It was based on a short story that was published in 1957 in, drumroll, Playboy magazine. Oh. Yeah, there was an... Hello. Yeah, exactly. There was another... Um, yeah, what? I. It's like how Teen Vogue at the moment is like this great publication with excellent essays for some reason. But um, let's get into it now. You ready for my summary? I'm ready. I'm ready. Bring it. With the fly, we venture into David Cronenberg's universe of body horror. No, not the terrible body horror of Hostel, but the body horror which is the horrifying transformation from within. A small change that grows into a festering wound, a wound that slowly but relentlessly changes your body and eventually your mind. At some point, you cross a line where you can no longer cling to your own humanity. Where is that line? The fly asks. After you lose your ability to eat, how about speech? Or maybe after Gina Davies pulls your face off and then your deep, gold-bloomy eyes fall out on the floor. Meet Seth Brundle, a cute and nerdy scientist who lives with his work and gets excited talking about coffee. Wink. He meets Veronica Quaif. 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 A science journalist with a stalker ex-boyfriend slash editor, Stathis Borens, and convinces her to check out his invention, a teleporter. He can't teleport animated objects, and upon meeting her and being inspired by her, states that this is because I must not know about the flesh myself. I have to learn. Thus, he does learn about the flesh and successfully teleports a baboon. However, after Ronnie leaves abruptly to confront her stalker Stathis, Seth drunkenly transports himself. It seems successful, but unbeknownst to him, a fly had snuck into the machine during the process. At first, he feels fantastic, and in his mania, tries to force Ronnie to undergo the same process, scaring her. First, he ignores her concerns, but then realizes that something did go wrong and then discovers that his DNA has been fused with that of a fly, turning him into Brundlefly. His subtle body transformations start to become more serious, and Brundlefly slowly loses his humanity before we get the final showdown where, upon trying to force Ronnie together with their unknown baby into the teleporter so that they can all three become one, he is interrupted in the task by Stathis and he accidentally fuses together with the teleporter itself, becoming one with his work. In great tragedy, Ronnie uses a shotgun to put Brundle out of his misery. That's the fly. Well... Well, we're back with Jeff Goldblum. <laughs> uh, wow! Uh, can I just say I've got I've got one. Uh, can, okay. Yeah. <clears throat> you can say something. Okay. Try to get it in though. I don't, I don't even know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, so what's your? Just tell me your thoughts. Go. Okay. Come on. Hashtag Brundlefly. Hashtag Countdown Clock. Hashtag Sexy Science Pillow Talk. Hashtag Airlock Drama. Hashtag On a Molecular Level. Hashtag Mad Scientist. Hashtag What the fuck. 
They're my thoughts. <laughs> on a molecular level, I actually wrote that one down too. On a molecular I level. I knew you'd like that one. <laughs> becomes a hashtag. So I'm with you. Right. Can yeah. I say, right, I, I came into watching this movie fully convinced I had seen it before. Like, absolutely. Mm. I was like, I've, I've seen this. Oh. Of course I've seen this. I've seen The Fly. I've definitely seen The Fly. And I watched The Fly and went, what the fuck? I haven't seen this. This is all weird. This isn't what I thought it was. And then I went in my brain going, did I see like a spoof version? And just realized at the end, I've actually seen the 1958 version. So I was really, I was like, I was waiting for him to step out of the <gasps> really? teleporter with the bug eyes. I was waiting for the little fly with his head to be like buzzing around Ronnie going, help me, help me. No way. I was so confused. I was like, why Why didn't any of this happen before I realized it was a remake? And I was like, oh my God. It's very different. It's quite different. The 1958 version is batshit, but this was batshit as well. So it's fine. It's batshit. It's, it's only got the same name and it's both based on the same story. Yeah. But that's all that's similar. This, yeah, because in the original movie, they have his head be a fly. Mm. Whereas they keep his head Goldblum, um, and that helps us obviously worry for Jeff for Seth Brundle the entire time. Are we keeps worried his voice, for him, keeps his Are eyes. We? You're not concerned for you're not concerned for him. Not really. Why? Okay, so why don't you tell me what you thought about the movie? Uh, <laughs> I thought it was just bonkers. <laughs> really, I have so many like. I enjoyed it and I enjoyed it in terms of like it's full science like the whole movie is scientist science experiment gone wrong what's happening I enjoyed that Mm -hmm. aspect of it like science journalism science everything it's great but like oh my god it's so 80s isn't it it had so much Uh, similarity to me for altered states the clothes are 80s, the set, his computer, his, like, well, everything, the teleporters itself. <laughs> yeah, it's extremely 80s, obviously. Her outfits are just wild, yeah. and I am, um, wow. I really I enjoyed Gina tra- Davis, I will say, though. She was great. Oh, my God. She's Except a, for the, she's the noises. <laughs> but the, the whimpering, the constant whimpering sounds, though. <laughs> Can I just tell you what I thought about this movie? Yes, please tell? do. I feel like you loved this... it and I'm surprised. Oh my God, I loved it. <laughs> Firstly, it is about 95 minutes. It starts when the story starts and ends as soon as the story ends. Mm. There is no subplot unless you count the whole pregnancy as a subplot, which I'm not sure that it is. Yeah. Or the, the lover, uh, her ex-lover as a subplot, which I don't think is a subplot either. There is no other places that they are other than his room and where they meet and, you know, a few other things relevant to the plot. Yeah. And there's nothing else happening but the central story. And then as soon as it ends, the credits roll. Yeah. It's so tight. And I appreciate that yes, enormously. Definitely. We don't see that anymore, man. Movies drag on. They drag on. This one didn't drag on. So, yeah. um, so I appreciated that. But this movie, oh, my God, I fucking loved it. <laughs> Obviously, it's got a lot of gore, yeah. a lot of horror. Um. It is what it is. That's Cronenberg. Um, that's that's what he does. So I knew I knew that um, all the way. But it's all puppetry, by the way. Mm. All puppets and makeup. And they won the Oscar for makeup as well. Oh wow! 
And one of the makeup artists went on to direct The Fly too. Whatever. Like, it's a whole bonkers. Yeah. I appreciate it in terms of an 80s movie. Like, I don't expect... Like, I'm not looking at it kind of going like, oh, it's terrible because it's old. It's not a terrible movie. That's mm. not what I mean. It's just bonkers. And I definitely... There was some questionable choices in that. There was some questionable acting. There was some questionable moments in general. But, like... Mm. I think for me, probably the biggest thing that I I just maybe I couldn't really get into the monster side of it too much because no matter what, the monster had Jeff Goldblum's voice. Well, that's on purpose. Yeah, but I just I couldn't I know, but I just couldn't like I couldn't meet the two together. And it was just I was like, this is so weird. It's Goldblum. But he's just got that weird face. (laughs) He kept his, he kept him articulate as long as possible, and there's a point where the computer no longer recognizes his voice. Yeah, and and he kept his eyes there as long as possible, and the eyes fall out, and then he's no longer yeah Goldblum, no longer is mm. there. So those things were changed from the original movie. Um, um, let's just introduce the the cast of characters, which there are three. Uh, there's Veronica Quaif, played by Gina Davis. There's um, Jeff Goldblum who plays Seth Brundle, and is it John Getz, is that his name, who plays Stathis. And Stathis Mm -hmm. is the editor of Particle Magazine. Veronica works as a journalist for Particle Magazine. She meets Jeff Goldblum at a fair. She's looking for a good story, and that's how they meet. But but her and Seth are ex-lovers as well, and Stathis obviously is a little obsessed with her and harasses her quite a bit. And that's pretty much all the characters. We see one scene yeah. where the, where um, at the point where she realizes she's pregnant, and they go to the the doctor, and that that's pretty much the only other character in the entire movie. Some back alley abortionist. Yeah. Um, the, there's something I want to talk about though. Right. The, I need to talk about the music. Okay. Oh, okay. Of course. You mentioned it's a great '80s movie. Yeah. Um, a lot of '80s horror films used electronic music which there's right. nothing wrong with that but this was a full orchestral score by Howard Shaw Howard Shaw who mm. did Lord of the Rings this is a fun fact about Frida the first CD I ever bought myself was the Lord of the Rings soundtrack total nerd what? but it's true I'm I suck oh my, the first CD I ever bought was Wigfield Saturday Night single <laughs> <laughs> Well, I didn't even know what that is. What is that? Saturday night dance. I like the way you move. Be my baby. <laughs> Mine was do 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 lady do 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 lady. Hobbits. Howard Shaw also did Silence of the Lambs. Oh. And can you have a great movie without a great score? No. This. So I, I just want to talk about the music because it's just so good. The music has, um, oh yeah, and and also Howard Shaw did did more Cronenberg films, Dead Ringers and Naked Lunch. So mm. so so a lot of the score is just there's two main themes. One is um, with brass instruments. It's much darker. It goes, dun, 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 dun. that's how it starts at the beginning, and then and mostly the music is kind of at the beginning and at the end, and then there's a lot of variations throughout, and then there's a much moodier, more sinister uh, motif with springs with strings that goes. Dun. 
right? And then throughout, there's like some variations. For example, when they meet, it's kind of like a warm, jazzy score. And then there's another theme with the baboon experiments, which is、um, to do with the successful science, and it's a little bit more、um, elegant and light, and、um, you know, to do with like the boundless possibility of science and all that kind of thing. But the music was amazing. That was the first thing, cause because it it was before anything started, the score started and it just it hooked me immediately. I think、wow. that helps with me when I love a movie. If the music gets me, I feel a lot better about the film. It's so interesting because I worked for so long in musical theater, and that's the main thing that I love about musical theater is the the it's the orchestral sounds, it's the swell of the music, it's those moments in in musicals or in opera or operettas where you just have. All of the emotion comes through it, so I like Sweeney Todd is one of the best for me because that choral sound just sweeps you away with it, and they're、mm. feelings I massively have when it comes to theater. I just have never、yeah. put too much thought into it with movies. I should probably, yeah, I think I should start thinking about this a little bit more. This is, I like、yeah. this. See, look, you're bringing new things to me. You make me watch movies that make me sad, and then you make me listen to、yeah. music. Ah. <laughs> So、some music is too forceful, and it's trying to make up for like the shitty writing or the shitty acting.、Yeah. But some movies, it compl- complements it because、um, a lot of the tension is already built through the way the movie is shot and the performances and the writing,、mm. and the score is there to kind of assist you into that. And it isn't overbearing, and it isn't forceful. It isn't telling you be emotional. You're already emotional because of all the other things. It's it sort of helps you helps、yeah. you along or encourages you to cross over, to cross over that boundary. All right. Well, well, those were the things I wanted to say generally about the production of the movie.、Um, one other thing is maybe that it cost nine million dollars and it、wow. made sixty million dollars. Oh, cool! At the box office. So、is、nine million a、success. lot for the eighties? No, it's、oh, not a、okay. lot. It's, um, but back to what we were talking about with with the, the with the themes of the movie. Okay,、mm-hmm. so, um, at what point are you no longer human? So Cronenberg himself said that this is a um an analogy or a metaphor for disease and old age. Oh, cool. Okay,、yeah. he finds something and he chooses to ignore it, and slowly, slowly, it becomes bigger until he can no longer ignore it. And there is a scene where he says, "Am I dying? Is this how it starts?" And he slowly、um, starts to decay and to transform. But the other part of the movie is that his lover has to watch in horror as、yeah. um, Brandle starts to transform away from what she was starting to fall in love with, and it's tragic. And it's very hard for her to see. So all of this is representing the process of aging, which in itself is a form of body horror. Your skin decays, your eyesight goes, your speech goes. All these horrible things happen to you, and we all go through it. And there's a certain horror in in that whole process, and in watching your loved one go through that process.、Right. And then the questions that come along with that, which are, what is your identity attached to? Um, and and the crisis of identity that happens around body changes and eventually mind changes and at what point are you no longer there? So I think that's what the movie is literally about. Right. That's what it's about, and it just uses the genre to communicate those ideas. Okay. You're in agreement. Yeah, with me. yeah. No, that sounds good. I think that that makes a lot of sense to the story and everything and to what's going on. 
that aside, Abby, <laughs> <laughs> welcome to our best section, trope of the week. Those are the themes of the movie, disease, metamorphosis, age, loss of oneself, loss of identity around body changes, mind changes, all that jazz. That's all fine. Abby, what is your trope of the week? Dun, dun, dun. Um, there was a lot going on in this movie. There was a lot of stuff. Um, I'm actually going to pick something that's pretty much the same one as what I picked for our last episode, Captain America, because it annoyed me so much. It is the misunderstanding leads to drunken stupidity and decisions that ruin lives. Oh, it fucked me off. Storytelling, yeah. It was just like, it was just a thing. And he's just, he's literally standing there, randomly, suddenly, out of nowhere, just drinking from a, like the champagne bottle as if he's been wounded because she dared yeah. to go to sort something out. And then he just starts making these assumptions, but there doesn't even seem to be any logical train to the assumptions. It just goes, I'm a bit drunk. Oh, she's probably fucking him. The baboon's okay. I'll get in the machine. You're just like, what? What just happened? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like a plot device. Yeah. Which you, sometimes you're like, ugh. Sometimes it this works. Like sometimes stories. it's fed in in such a way where it makes sense. And then sometimes it's just like, we need this to happen. So let's, yeah, like you said, a plot device to make this happen. But it just feels like it's just, this feels wrong. What's happening right yeah. now? Yeah. She could have just explained herself. I could, in real life, you would fucking explain yourself in movies. Yeah. yeah, people never explain themselves. But haven't you ever like made yourself go crazy thinking about like somebody who you were in only the yeah. beginning of a relationship with. So you're not at the point where you like are free to necessarily ask each other those things yeah. or would you tell each other those things? But you have to wait until the point in your relationship where you can just ask each other anything. But before you're there, you might be like, oh God, he, uh, he said no to go out tonight. Yeah. Oh, oh my God, I bet you this, I bet you that. And you can work yourself up to the point where you're like, oh, fuck it, that's it. I am deleting him yeah. from my phone, from my <laughs> life. And then he'll call me, you'll be like, oh, hi. Yeah, everything's yeah, yeah, I'm totally well. free yeah, tonight. I didn't just great. spiral into fucking insanity. <laughs> it's totally fine. <laughs> I know, but yeah. I just, oh, yeah. it's just that, you know, just the, it's that kind classic you know drunken idiot thing and you're just like oh for fuck's sake yeah anyway that was mine what was what was your trope i have a couple of aside tropes before i say my actual trope okay. because just a call back to my trope from independence day also oh. with jeff goldblum okay when when his dad when his dad is like you're gonna get a cold and he goes <laughs> oh cold oh my god say that again and he runs off and this, I feel like, was the origin of that trope. Oh. When when he was like that the that the machine doesn't understand the flesh, yeah. to be flesh crazy, and and so, and and she goes, I want to pinch your cheeks. I just want to eat you. You know, like an old lady wants to eat a baby. <laughs> and he's like, flesh crazy, crazy for flesh. You have to know the flesh. The computer doesn't know the flesh. I have to teach it the flesh. I don't know the flesh. I, I program the computer. I must learn the flesh. I must learn the flesh. I must have sex with you for that. This whole like, at least he didn't run off. He did explain it. But yeah. that whole like logic jump yeah. trope was here as well very much. And mm. it might even be, you know, what cemented the trope for all other movies. But my trope of the week is this movie 
might not have started this trope, but it it cements the trope in movie culture so that people refer back to this when they think about this trope, which is the gibbering genius trope. Oh, yes. So the genius... So in movies, people do not speak with realistic diction. Normally people stutter. They can't think of a word. They say like this, da, da, da. They kind of... Um, the way I'm talking right now, da, 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 you know, mm. this is how we, we speak. We don't really come around to the point necessarily as quickly as people do in script writing. The only character that does is the genius. The re- so the reason why the, the only person who gets to speak like in a realistic way is the genius is because yeah. they're trying to show that they think so fast that they have to have like the motor mouth to keep up with it to show you what a genius they are. Yeah. It's so true. It is just that thing. It's like, yeah, I, I'm tripping over my words because my mouth can't keep up with my brain because I'm so smart. Oh my God, my brain. Yeah, yeah that's the trope that I wanted to bring up here. Okay. In this movie. Um, can I, Rundle. Can I question yeah. you about one other trope? Because I can't believe you haven't brought it up. Tell me. It's the first main instance since Annihilation. Since you instigated and created Sexy Science, Sexy Science Pillow, Pillow Talk. Talk. Here and if I mean, if there isn't sex, I mean, if there if there is any movie that is sexy science below talk, it was this. It came from this. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I guess I just spoke about it without mentioning it by its name. It's the trope that we don't mention by its name. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, because it, it's it's a yeah. similar. It's two tropes in one, isn't it? Because it's your one from Independence Day with the um, cold virus. What? I'm just giving a cold. <laughs> uh, but it's also sexy because they're having the sexy science pillow talk and that's where the realization yeah. comes in. But yeah, it was that whole thing. I was just, I was, I was super, when I saw it, I was like, yay, Frida's going to be so happy. Sexy science pillow talk. <laughs> I want to go straight into the next section actually immediately. Okay, go. Because the next section, we're going to talk about science as it's represented as a theme and the representation of scientists. And, um, Immediately, I want to talk about this because this is the entrance of the Goldblum hipster scientist. Yes. Right. Oh, this, it's your hipster Jew scientist. <laughs> I don't know if he's Jewish in the thing, but here we go. Hipster yeah. scientist. Married to the work. I only wear one outfit because Einstein said, oh, yeah. Einstein said that I don't have to make the decision. I've got one outfit. And of course, you look fabulous. I know a scientist that wears one outfit, can I say? Yeah. It's just like an outfit that functions as clothes. Yeah. So that whole like, I'm so stylish. Why would you be that stylish in like a loft by yourself as this dysfunctional scientist? Yeah, on your own all the time. He has no friends. Why is he stylish? Yeah, exactly. Why, why are you stylish? Because, well, it's a movie and it's Jeff Goldblum. Okay, let's just talk about Jeff Goldblum some more. Okay. I've never felt so seen. I thought I was seen with Jeff Goldblum. Are you serious? Day. <laughs> Firstly, five seconds after meeting her, he's like, come to my place. I have this coffee machine. <laughs> it's not just a regular coffee machine. It's a different kind of coffee machine. I've talked about coffee to everybody. So come, oh. I'll make you coffee. It's going it to be is- like this. It's going to be like that. And then what's there? It's like there's a piano smack in the middle of the room <laughs> and it just starts playing. So for me, I was like, piano, coffee, 
can't stop talking, <laughs> overexcited. I was like, I'm, I'm, I feel seen. Okay, I, I'm, I, yes. I get that. I totally get that for a bit. Yeah, all the nice things about him. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, Bruntlefly, uh. but you know, th- those characteristics about him are there. There is a lot to like about science people. Mm. When you're close to them, when you're around them more, like there's a lot of charming people. Yes. Definitely. Oh god! Yeah. If you can tolerate them. <laughs> yeah. He was at. He was at a. He was at like a fair in order to promote his shit, and he just like couldn't be there for five seconds. Yeah. He just found one person. He got excited <laughs> to tell that one person and brought that person back to his lair. Like that was the whole, the full sum of his performance at the fair. And then found out she was a Where journalist. Other people and was like, been... no, you can't leave. You can't have this information. <laughs> um, and she she is part of a magazine called Particle Magazine, and then her editor is horrendous. And uh, she's there to report on on what's happening in science and find some good stories, kind of like a Scientific American mm. type thing, which is which is different than you know because we have the journals and that that publish the work and the studies that's more official yeah. but the public doesn't read that it's so important to have these journalists and science communicators who bridge the gap between the sort yeah. of academia and the public don't don't you think absolutely and like the thing about it for me is i i found it really interesting because they, like they're so rare that there's a movie where there's a science journalist as a character you know, so I, mm. I thought that was really cool that it was very kind of like she is a journalist. This is the magazine. This is her editor. It's it's the same as the way other magazines work, but it's science. And it's something that's really important to me is how we communicate science to from research to public. Um, uh, the problem is, is that it's still just as competitive. Science journalism is massively competitive. Any journalism, I guess, is. But I found it really interesting that, like, she was willing to pitch and write the story without his approval because she got a scoop. And I'm like, okay, that's cool. You got Mm. a scoop. But he, and like, he didn't say off the record. And she does have recordings of him speaking. That's fine. But how is she going to explain this science to other people? And that's what bugs me a little bit. He didn't explain to her exactly how it all works. You know, he hasn't perfected it. He hasn't finished it. So it's just that classic thing where it was like, I got a scoop. I got to go with it. So now I'm going to send out a snappy article with a snappy headline for everyone to then Mm -hmm. go, oh, I don't know if he should be doing that. And everyone will suddenly have opinions about it. But it might not be the reality of the science that's actually happening. But. I don't know. Anyway, it was just a thing where I was like, this is really cool and it's showing the reality of it and it's showing like the, you know, the competitiveness of it then like where the editor is trying to like scoop her a little bit as well or or trying to write the story in his own way. But it also just brought up a thing for me that I have that I struggle with right now is how we how the public gets to digest science Mm -hmm. versus what scientists are actually doing. How do you feel about it? Uh, I'm in total agreement because the publications that will properly explain the science and the context of a study and the context of a discovery will be in publications that will be read by people already interested in science. 
So yeah. not necessarily the people we need to be communicating it to. Whereas the stories that reach the mainstream newspapers and news outlets that reach the public, I agree all too often they're like completely misconstrued or the importance of a study or like a study will be published but not the context of that study or like oh this was only like a preclinical thing we haven't even started trials or anything like that yeah so terrifying people or just misconstruing completely the significance of something um a really good example will come up later but like the CRISPR technology which may maybe yeah. gene editing technology most importantly m might have implications for medicine all the people can ever talk about is the ethics of like changing colored eyes like that's what makes it yeah. to the news outlet is the sexy stuff about oh my god we're gonna have designer babies no we're not maybe yeah. it'll cure <laughs> genetic mutations that cause debilitating disease why don't you write about that it's because we now live in a clickbait world and that's the thing yeah and that's what you it's all about it's yes. what can drive tra traffic what headline will make somebody click on this article and there are times where i yeah. have seen a headline of an article clicked into it read the article and gone that headline was insanely misleading in comparison to mm -hmm. what like you've reported it correctly in the article like i'm happy with the way you've written the article but the headline you put on this is completely misleading and that really really grates on me yeah but anyway, um, I liked I liked her as the journalist. The yeah. editor was a dick, yeah. but she, like, you know, I, I thought it was cool that it was a part of the movie. I really thought that kind of aspect yeah. of science and reporting was a part of mm -hmm. it. I really liked that. But yeah, it just brought up some strong yeah. feelings for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We should reach out to people in a way that ignites their curiosity, makes them want to ask more yeah. and learn more and not which delivers information packaged to them just so they can get a strong response like no we want people to be yeah, more curious exactly ask more questions um yeah so i i like that too the science journalism and um the, the relationship between you know you know grants and journalism and communication and how that relates and weaves into the realities of being a scientist like going to the press is a very very important part of being a scientist and that was definitely shown shown here yeah. So I think that that's enough of the science as an environment, science as a theme. Now, here it comes. Mm. <laughs> Guess what's coming? Guess what's coming? It's science. It's science. I don't know if I'll be, I don't know if I can cope with this. I don't know if you can cope with this. Okay. But here comes the science. <laughs> I definitely don't is. think I can cope, but I'm I'm ready for it. From the first moment where I was just like, and he was start, I was like, oh man, here we go. Okay, cool. <laughs> Bring it. <laughs> so there are two major things happening, all right, that we can talk about. Number one is genetic editing, if you will, or splicing or whatever the fuck. And the second thing is teleportation. I'm leaving that hey! to last because I'm scared. Okay. Of myself That's the talking fun about one. it. Okay. I don't know if I can do it, <laughs> but I'm gonna start with just I'm gonna go so gentle because I I also genetic ge genetics I'm I, I'm very I don't know anything but here I fucking go. <laughs> okay. How accurate is it? Is he splicing with the fly? N not really. 
because, well, even though, do you know we have 70% of our DNA um, in common with a housefly? Oh, I think I, yeah, I, mean, I think I saw that because and we was have, like, sorry, what? <laughs> well, yeah, it doesn't matter because we have 50% of our DNA in common with a banana. Yeah. <laughs> so the, wow, it hurts. <laughs> It really unifies us as a species, how, how much in common we have. Mm. So the, the genes that we do share with houseflies, what's responsible for embryonic development, that's what, that's what we have in common. Um, but but it, you can't actually combine humans and flies because, and it talks about at the cellular level, at the <laughs> cellular level, we have 23 pairs of chromosomes and flies only have six. So they're not combining the DNA. What is happening it's more like a viral infection, lentiviral infection, oh. actually, which can affect your genetic makeup. So a virus, a fly virus, in- invades the human cell and then starts to copy itself. That's, that's not splicing or anything like that. It, it wouldn't actually lead to what, with the changes that happened to, to him at all. It, well, <laughs> so... Huh? I I guessed. <laughs> I guessed. I guessed. I guess there was maybe just a little bit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you you couldn't you couldn't splice because it's so different. But so actually genetic engineering, where we are. Mm. All right, so last last episode, two weeks ago, two weeks ago, we did Captain America and we discussed some gene editing and we touched on on CRISPR. Um yeah. so so CRISPR's actually a naturally occurring process. It stands for clustered, regularly interspaced, oh. short palindromic repeats. Who cares? But it's actually in about fifty percent of bacteria, <laughs> they have an a, adaptive immune system CRISPR. Oh, okay. All right. And what it does is it allows them to cut and degrade viral DNA. Because just like us, bacterial cells can also be invaded by um, viruses. So if a viral infection threatens a bacteria cell, the CRISPR immune system thwarts the attack by destroying the genome of the invading virus. And it does it okay. in three steps. You ready? Mm. Step number oh, one is oh, adaptation. Yeah. So DNA from okay. an invading virus is processed into these short segments that gets inserted into the CRISPR sequence as a new what's called spacer. So first it absorbs the DNA of the invading virus, mm. right? What does it do next? Produces CRISPR RNA. RNA is the molecule that matches with the DNA, right? Again, stuff yeah. is super complicated to me. All right, so then it produces the CRISPR mm. RNA, right? The CRISPR repeats and yeah. spaces in the bacterial DNA undergo transcription. It's called the process of copying DNA into RNA, right? So then the RNA chain is cut into short pieces, and that's called CRISPR RNA. Then targeting. So now that it has the CRISPR RNAs, it can guide the bacteria molecular machinery towards the viral material to destroy it. And so because the CRISPR... Because the CRISPR RNA sequences are copied from the viral DNA sequences, they're exact matches, and so they can serve as a guide. So again, it absorbs the DNA into itself into its spaces which it keeps and it's there all the time now so if this virus ever reinvades the bacteria it has the genetic memory it absorbs it it produces rna and then it uses rna to guide towards the virus dna and destroy it so lab synthesized crispr basically follows exactly the same process right 
we synthesize an RNA molecule that matches some sort of uh, gene in a human cell, for example, like that. And then we use the RNA to guide our machinery to chop out that that gene to silence the gene or even to exchange it. It's copying a natural process. It's really, really, really interesting. So what's a really good, important application of this technology, which I actually am talking about this because I've been on a project where I've seen this happen, is to make animal models with little genetic changes so that you can study human diseases in an animal Mm. model, right? You can change little parts of the animal's DNA, introduce human DNA into it so you can study a more human version of the disease. Because if you're studying an animal model, again, the disease in an animal model is not the same as the disease in a human because animals have different genes than humans. It's not exactly the same thing. It's like the same symptoms, for example. Right. So by introducing um, new changes to the genetic makeup of the animal that includes human genes, you're getting a little bit closer to humans. So your study starts to adapt more towards a human study. And it's a bit more evidence that might be needed to go into a clinical trial. Oh, okay. Anyway, that was all. I, that was what I wanted to say about genetic editing. I feel like this this field is like huge yeah. and very complicated, and I feel like almost like very nervous talking about it. But what what we did talk about with it in Captain America was its use for um, suppressing the myostatin gene, which allows for muscular growth and increased strength. Uh, and that is a question I do have for you in this epigenetic modification that went on with him being in, with him having a virus introduced uh, in the form of the fly, the genes of the fly changing his genetic code. Why did he get super strong and suddenly able to do massive gymnastics? I... Had exactly the same thought. I was like, oh, of course, he could do massive gyna- gymnastics because all you need is strength, not like 10 years of training. I was right? like, why is he on a gym? Like, he just randomly has this bar hanging from his ceiling that he can use as a gymnastics bar. And I was like, what? Do I flies? I literally wrote down, can flies do this? Googling fly, how strong are flies? Everything, everything in a movie like that, you get, you know, genetic splicing or whatever, always results in people being super strong for some reason. Yeah, super, super. Like I, I don't know why, why we're obsessed with it as people. Like there's something about us where we're just like, yeah, you want to be strong, but it's like it is that first thing that happens to him, and then he goes out in the street and like you know when he gets pissed at her because she won't like take that risk that he's taken and tries to throw her into the pod and then he's like oh I'm gonna go find somebody else and then obviously every man's fantasy of strength (laughs) expression of how do we prove how strong we are we arm wrestle yeah it's just like okay you're gonna arm wrestle and that break was super gross like it was it was, it was so gross. gross. But it did make me go, could that actually happen? I was like, could he be strong enough to have broken um, his arm like that? And the thing is, it made me kind of, I had a little look and then learned that arm wrestling is a legit sport with a legit community and loads of stuff on technique and styles. Really? They even have different names for like different pulling techniques and styles. It was just like, oh my God, what's going on? Uh, first lesson, pull, don't push when you're arm wrestling, FYI. Um, but... Pull, it's 
Lord. Really interesting because pushing puts strain on the bone. And it's actually super common. And there's lots of papers on humeral shaft fractures as a result of arm wrestling. But the humerus is the bone in your upper arm. And it's actually really common that people break this bone while arm wrestling. And it's because there's a contrast with your... Um, when you're pushing or pulling against some of the other arm, your elbow is locked in a fixed bent position, uh, but your shoulder is rotating and your humerus, so your upper arm, that bone is rotating as well as you're in the action of it. Um, and that means that there's a lot of torque that's generated that's going down through your humerus and the pressure, so all the pressure is on your upper arm bone and then that can lead to a fracture or a break if you have bad technique. There are videos online. There's videos online of people breaking their arm, arm wrestling. Oh. There's lots of them. Um, that's the most common injury. I couldn't find anything about whether the pressure would come through the wrist enough to break the wrist the way he did. But I guess if he's suddenly super strong, maybe he could have snapped the wrist. But I think it would have been more mm. likely that the dude's upper arm would have broken. But yeah, I just thought that was like, what? Arm wrestling? God, men are dumb. Ugh. Like it's so stupid, but it's even more stupid because why is he strong? Specifically, ants can carry a lot of their body weight, so oh, yeah. maybe. But if you were a, does does that mean if you were an ant man, you could do gymnastics? You know, <laughs> <laughs> that's a different question than whether you're strong. Flies know, we'll can get do to gymnastics. that movie. It's okay, he can't even fly. <laughs> no, yeah, fly. So. He in the movie he has all these transformations that are like very fly specific and then a lot of fly non-specific. <laughs> one of the fly non-specific. Oh. One of the fly specific changes is is him secreting. Well, he, even with the arm wrestling, you see him secreting some oh, weird shit. But whatever, gosh. he vomits up stuff. And the first time he does it in front of Veronica, he was like, oh, God, that was disgusting. <laughs> He's still kind of being funny. He, he vomits things up and then hoovers it up. Ugh. And then, of course, it's like Chekhov's gun. It comes back later on yeah. because he vomits on Stathis hand and foot. I, honest to God, laughed out loud the whole way through that scene. When it, the hand and the scream and the face and the clear clearly holding the fake stump as it's melting in front of him and then he just goes on the leg and I was like why how acidic is a fly's spit could it go through bone that's my question which I don't know the answer could it because they can't eat solid foods because they have sponge-like mouths so they soak up liquids so when they're met with something that's solid they've got like um their taste receptors are in their feet so that's why they stand on your food and they decide whether oh is this yummy or not and if it's solid, then they have Fuck these digestive flies. enzymes. So they just regurgitate a little bit. It liquefies the food and then they can slurp it up um, as liquid using uh, through their food pump that's inside their head. Um, so it's like a suction thing. But uh, as to whether it could liquefy bone, Ugh. that seems a bit much, right? But then again, he's changed. He's a monster. A he's, you know, who knows what's going on inside that body. He's better than... He- his brundle fly. Brundle fly. It's brundle it's a fly good was so fly. Funny. It's a good it's a good thing that they chose a fly. I think it's a good choice because when you blow a fly up and make it a human, it's a really alien. It's really yeah. alien. Yeah, it's gross. It's not quite human, and it makes a good example. 
All right, that was a really good um, chat before I start to talk about teleportation. (laughs) (laughs) Because this is... Because we have to talk about teleportation. We do, of course. We have to do it. We're forced to. We're forced to do it. Teleportation. (laughs) Because here, what is he doing? Disappearing and then appearing in in one thing. And it seems like it's getting all the information from one side. And the magic computer, this magic computer, is remaking it up on the other side. (laughs) This magic computer is just thinking for itself. And it's got little 80s graphics as well. I loved, I loved the computer. It seems to be creative as well, right? Yeah. It's like a, it's like a, it's very creative. It's like, oh, I don't really know. I haven't been programmed to deal with this. And let me come up with something to do and I'll just do that. Cool. I'll finish the story. It's It's all right. (laughs) Yeah, I'll do it. So it disappears. It it gets assembled via instructions Mm. somewhere else. So, so what is this? This is what kind of teleportation is this? There are three kinds. Everyone knows. Everyone knows there are three kinds of teleportation. (laughs) Number one, well, they're about to know. Okay, come on. You disappear one place and you reappear in another place via, I don't know, magic. Cool. Or a wormhole, right? Number two, you get disassembled, transported, and reassembled, which is IKEA furniture. Yeah, that's the one I know. This is how flat you flap, get a flat pack. It becomes a shelf that you have tra- teleported the shelf. <gasps> Number three, scan all the information, send the information, reassemble from matter. Yes. I'm guessing they're number three, even though what matter is it reassembling from? I just want to know. Oh, I, I mean, yes. I'm not judging. I'm not judging. But you scan, destroy, reassemble from matter, which is, I guess, arguably what they're doing in Star Trek. Yeah. Is they're scanning, destroying, reassembling. Scanning, reassembling. Oh, isn't that cloning? Is that what you just asked? What a good question. Well, no. Because you know there's something called the no cloning theorem? No. In quantum mechanics? No. If something obeys the laws uh, of physical nature... You cannot have an exact replica uh, of an unknown quantum cell. Put quantum to the side. You cannot have an exact replica of something. Right. If you teleport the state, it's called the no cloning theorem. I'm not going into it now unless it comes up later as cloning. Oh, yes. But this does exist in quantum mechanics, the no cloning theorem. If you teleport a state, and I'll explain what I mean by state later, the original state has to be destroyed. And what's on the other side becomes exactly the same thing that you started with so not a clone not a copy the same thing so brundle on the other side that is him what's left behind must therefore be destroyed because the no cloning theorem states that you cannot have two of exactly the same things it's not something like him it's him and that's why it's teleportation and not whatever we call cloning these days Mm -hmm. right it's him and it has to be destroyed. So we're going to talk about it right now. Quantum teleportation. <laughs> we're going to talk about it. Okay. Is, teleportion, is teleportation possible? Absolutely. It happens. It's called quantum teleportation. What is quantum teleportation? I'm going to explain it to you. <laughs> All right. There's, Al- there's Bob and there's Alice. Alice and Bob. We're going to transport a bit of information from Alice to Bob about a quantum state. 
or I can just call it information, so that she can reproduce a quantum set on the other side, thus teleporting it. Okay? Okay. So Bob and Alice are going to try to teleport a quantum state from one of them to the other. How do they do this? Well, they have to prearrange to have an entangled pair of particles shared between them via quantum entanglement. These, this is called an Einstein-Podolsky-Rosen correlated pair of particles. And they have to share this quantumly entangled particles between them and they use that quantum entanglement to transfer information about the quantum state or to teleport the quantum state. Okay, I'm going to explain quantum entanglement and we're going to go back to something that we brought up a few weeks ago, four weeks ago with a girl with all the gifts. We brought it up and then we laughed at it and now we're going to bring it up in its appropriate place and that is Schrodinger's cat. (laughs) I'm going to use Schrodinger's cat to explain to you what is quantum entanglement. You ready? Okay. Schrodinger's cat. So this is basically a way to describe a quantum state. But instead of the quantum state, we're going to blow it up and we're going to talk about a cat. So it's much more easy to understand. The state is alive or dead. Is the cat alive? Is the cat dead? And the cat, it's within the box, right? Mm -hmm. So what you have when you look at the box is what's known of a superposition of states. You have the two states, the cat is alive and the cat is dead, and each of those have a different probability attached to them. A being the probability that the cat is alive, B being the probability that the cat is dead. And the whole existence of the cat is the addition of these two probabilities and possibilities. That's called a quantum superposition. So that cat exists in a quantum superposition, which describes the entire existence of a set of probabilities about the cat. We don't know what whether the cat is alive or is the cat dead. So what does it mean to entangle that cat with another particle to have entangled pair? Well, basically, for example, I would put a grenade in the box with the cat. If you know the state of the grenade, then you know the state of the cat. So if the grenade is exploded, the cat is dead. If the grenade is not exploded, the cat is still alive, most likely. (laughs) So you can just say if the grenade is exploded, the cat is dead. Thus, the state of the grenade is entangled with the state of the cat. So if you have these two entangled states um, and you're able to travel a distance between them, you can use those entangled pairs to pass information back and forth. And it has been shown that you can actually travel distances with an entangled pair. Not very long, but about 100 kilometers so far has been used to take an entangled pair and transport information um, or teleport and teleport a particle from one to the other. And this is successfully being done with photon, with an electron, and even with a calcium atom. Okay. Mm. Um, Now, it's very, very difficult to entangle large masses of particles for long enough to actually transport them from one place to the other that you would need to teleport it is the thing, right? But if, if Brundle was this was a quantum teleportation system, which in reality, it's the only kind of system it could be is quantum teleportation, then what he's figured out how to do, and it's a very short distance, so that's pretty good. So, so far, I think it's possible, is to take a whole large mass of particles and get the information which exists in particular states that form up Seth Brundle, right? So all the particles of his body uh, are in very particular arrangement that is Seth Brundle. And the thing that you have to do is transport all that information uh, 
via the computer to the other side where that exact uh, information is transmitted and then you can arrange it in exactly the same way so that it is literally Seth Brundle. And that is quantum teleportation done on the human level. So the so it begs the question, right, Where what is he being made up from? What he should have had is some discussion as to what he's being built from on the other side. But the other question is, what is left on the other side? Because as I said, the quantum mechanics says there is a no cloning theorem. So when that information gets passed through the computer and it creates not a copy of Seth, but exactly Seth, i.e. every single particle, the instructions of the state of every single particle that makes up Seth or makes up the monkey or whatever it is, is transmitted and rebuilt. It has to be destroyed on the other side. And what is left on the other side, Abby? It's the... What? <laughs> what is left on the other side? It's the most possible disordered version of the particles that made up Seth Brundle. So what has to be left on the other side is a superposition of every possible state of every single particle that makes up Seth has to be left on the other side. Okay. So on one side is the ordered state, which is Seth. On the other side is as disordered as possible state has to be left behind. And that would be quantum teleportation. It's a very short distance. So it has actually been done that single particle states, mm. I'm going to say particle information or about the state of a particle, which might be in his body, could easily be teleported to the other side. No issue. It's already been done. The question is, could all the particles in his body be transported from one side to the other? Not yet. Probably one day it will happen. But also, how useful is it to transport something five meters? Yeah. <laughs> Help! Um, um, the thing, so... This is hell. Yeah, you see, what I wonder about it is, so quantum entanglement, fine, you've got two particles. It's not the same particle. You've got two particles that um, are... As you said, it's like their state are their states are connected, and if you change the state of one, then the other one should have a reaction, and this can be done at a distance. And in theory, the whole idea of these particles, like you can have one on one side of the galaxy and one on the other side of the galaxy, and they should still have that connection as to how the information is translated. I have no idea, um, but in terms of like information translation, I get it. But we're talking about like transportation of matter, like. That's where I get confused because mm. I'm like passing information is one thing because you're like, OK, we've got particles on this side and this is the information about them. And we're going to transfer yeah. that information to the particles on the other side and they're going to create. Um, they're going to. And that's what he says yeah. it, it is. That's what he programs the computer to do. Yeah. He's like, break down the particles and then build the particles back up again based yeah. on the genetic code and all of that. Um yeah. And that's and he's passing information through the program computer. What what I struggle with is the idea of the actual matter itself. Because I know what you're mm -hmm. saying about like the no cloning theorem, but I'm like, but surely it's not him because it's not the same particles. They might be entangled, but it's still not the same particles. It's still not the same atoms being used to create him. But then I suppose if you say that we're all base atoms all of us are created from base atoms, but how do you recreate his brain? How do you recreate his mind, his synapses, his like mm. how he thinks? Neurons. Yeah, like how do you well how do you recreate that to make sure that it's the same?
even if you could transport the matter, it's not going to be the same on the other side. It literally is, though, because mm. well, what you're, you think you're putting a question about what is it? What does it mean to be me? Yeah, right. Maybe. And we're talking about to the quantum level. If you transport the state of every single part of your brain beyond the neuron level, all the way down to the quantum level, somewhere else, it literally is him. It is, and as we saw, he was put back together with the exact instructions yeah. um, that was given by the computer, and there was nothing left on the other side. That is him. It's disturbing because we think, are we just a mass of particles? The answer yeah. is, fuck yeah, we're a mass of particles. But it's disturbing to think about, well, who are we if we can just be put back together on the other side? Yeah, I suppose. I suppose it, it's what you said. It's about what 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 do we what do we view as uh, the self? Like what do we think of as who we are? If we're made up of mm. different par- different atoms and particles yeah. that have been given the information to allow them to be put into the exact same state that our body mm. is in, then um, you know we're just information. Are we not? You know, are we not information? We are exactly information. And he's so he's so casual about the fact that I'm being taken apart and put back together. He seems to be completely cool with that. He's yeah. like, I know I'm me. As in the baboon, he was like, that's the baboon. And in the, in the quantum theory of teleportation, indeed, it's the baboon. Right. There's nothing left on the other side but a completely disordered tangle of, of mess. Yeah. Um, I, hope, I hope that this is perfectly clear. <laughs> But it is yeah. really, really interesting and it is real and it's kind of mystical and it's kind of magical. Yeah. I'm tired from a quantum. I'm quantum tired. <laughs> and I need a quantum sleep. Okay, cool. <laughs> All right, I think that I think the science of this movie can now be left behind us. And now we get into <gasps> Yay. Yay. There is something we have left behind and I have a feeling we're about to talk about it. So let's get into it. What the f- what the f- what the fuck? Welcome to me and Abby's favorite section anyway. What the fuck? Abby, when you watched this movie, was there a moment, or maybe it wasn't a single moment, something about this movie that made you say, What the fuck? I'm just gonna give you a little bit of a scenario here, right? Um my what the fuck is related to the fact that she just went home with a crazy random dude because he said she'd want to hear about his work, like with zero information. And then it's a totally random warehouse area and she went in and then he literally jokes about having to kill her because she's seen his pod things. And in response, he asks her for an item and she does a sexy takeoff of her stocking. What the fuck? Like, and how about the one at the bar when he compound fractures the guy's arm and then she goes home with yes! him? Yes. Like, is there no sense of danger? This is this is huge for me, right? And we we'll have touched on it last week with Halloween minisode, right? But the whole reason this is bonkers is that. This movie was released in 1986 and this is literally, I just said it, the decade of the golden age of serial killers when it reached its peak. It's a terrible way to put it, but in the US, 
serial killers really started coming in in the 60s. It rose a lot in the 70s. And then it literally reached approximately 200 active serial killers in the mid 80s in the US. And the majority were, wow. they were going after women. And it wasn't just going after sex workers. You had people like Ted Bundy and you had the Night Stalkers, people who were going into women's homes. Like, just be rude and run. Like, Well, you don't want to be rude in real life. You don't want to be rude because being rude could incite anger. And that's yes, there's that danger. Too. So if you're polite, then you'll more likely get out of the situation, even if you have to give a little whatever. I think that's pretty much what a lot of women experience. Mm. Be polite because we don't want to incite that male yeah. anger, which we saw in this movie, unfortunately. Yeah, there's no sense of danger, firstly. And I'm really glad that that was your what the yeah. fuck because it, it complements heavily my what the I fuck. I feel like it's going to. Go on, tell me what yours was. Is the arc of Stathis. Yes. Because he is terrifying he is lewd and crude and rude he asks her he asks to use her body for sex two three times yeah lewd disgusting the way he shouts he refuses to give back a key to have control to control over him to come into the house when she's not there to scare her to control her to show that he's in control to follow her and in public confront her about wanting to sleep with somebody else when they're not together Oh my god. And then he becomes the hero. And I understand that there's a trope here about the person who's the monster in the beginning, Stathis, mm. becoming more human and the human, Brundle, becoming the monster. I understand that that is probably what was being explored, but you don't just become a hero all of a sudden. He has no moment did they cut something out where he understands that those things are wrong and maybe finds a better way to be. Are we are we meaning to say that underneath his psychopathic behavior there was deep care for her and that came out in the end? Give me a fucking break. That's what I just didn't get. Fuck you. Fuck off. Fuck the eighties. Fuck the fucking eighties. Fuck off. Fuck altered states. Yeah. <laughs> she has two men that should make her feel unsafe, and she goes right into both of them. She keeps going back to him, and I get what you're saying about the stripping back of the of the um cast. Yeah. But at the same time, it's like she's going back to him as he's the editor and then he talks to her being yeah. an editor and has a very rational conversation with her. And then at the end, hey, how about just having sex? And it's like, mm. what? Why was that necessary? You can show that he cares about her and has concern for her without it being that. And that line of with the key, when she says, I'll have my key back and he says the words, I think I'll keep it for old time's sake. And I'm literally just like, the fuck you will keep that. How dare you stand there and say that to her that you're just going to keep the key and she just goes okay yeah, no retribution it was just she was just stuck between hmm. two absolute pricks the whole movie and it just drove me crazy absolute pricks both using her absolutely mental both as bad as each other yeah drove me mental as well i like that our what the fuck was not to do with any of the body horror more yeah. gruesome moments the shock moments but about a serious failing of character development yeah character arc the Stathis had no had no visible character arc to me it was like at some point in the movie he just became her confidant and her hero as opposed to her abusive boss yeah which he was and there was no confrontation about that from her and over it yeah Yeah. I mean so uh, what the fuck yeah (laughs) what the fuck yeah I'm glad we're in agreement I think it's a big failing of the movie is is Stathis in particular yeah you know 
I understand that Goblin's character was, but do, do you know what's sort of being talked about in this movie as well? And 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 before we finish talking about the movie and going into our final verdicts, where body horror is talking about physical transformation and disease, but what it's saying really is what is within me, what is really there within me when I take all these other layers away, what can really come out, and that is much more terrifying than the physical body horror is what am I really capable of when I just let it all fucking go man like how much anger how much aggression how much violence what's really there and I think that therefore I don't have any issues with Brundle's arc I think that it's it is discussing some terrible terrifying things it is discussing some terrifying things about what lies underneath the politeness and the good manners that we see at the beginning of the movie. I take issue with Stathis because he starts as a psychopath, absolute psychopath, and ends up as a hero, and there doesn't seem to be any explanation as to why that happened. Yeah. And with that, we will leave behind this movie. So, let's do some final verdicts. Okay. N- question number one. <laughs> Just no. I don't know. We have to do it. Yeah. No. no. Okay. Did the movie pass the Bechdel <laughs> test? No. There was only one female character, so no. She really is beautiful, but her yes, hair, is. like... It's just so fluffy. It's just so fluffy. I, I can't believe women did that. Like, wow. <laughs> anyway, next question. <gasps> so fluff. Did it pass? So fluffy. I mean, we do so much to get rid of fluff these days. It's crazy. Did it pass the here comes the science bit, Abby? Well, well, now that you've talked about the science, I mean, I, I originally wrote down probably That's not. Right. But now that you've talked about it, I'm like, well, it is actually, you know, it, it, it's based on, on real science. I don't think what he did is possible, but. Um, it's the same as what we've said with many movies before where like there's a realistic basis to it so yeah I guess so yeah it didn't over explain by the way FYI here's the thing it didn't explain itself too much that's why I can yeah. give it a pass because if it went yeah, too explainy exactly. then I would have taken more issues it didn't explain it I just said here's a computer goes through here comes out there bang so I, I projected what I thought was a science onto it but it didn't give me anything so therefore subject to interpretation it passes Okay, final verdict. Abby, give me your final verdict out of baboons. How many? See, I have to slightly change it now. Okay. I'm kind of going with my verdicts. My verdicts are based on, there's the verdict that I have when I first watch it, and then there's the verdict once we've talked about it and I understand a bit more about the background and all that and whether I should change my mind. Um, So I'm going to bump it up by half a fly. So I'm giving it. No, I'm going to give it 2.8 flies. What was my verdict? I'm giving it four and a half stars. Are you fucking serious? I think this movie... I think this movie's... I'm giving oh, it four and a half. Jesus I was, Christ. I was actually going to give it five stars. I took away half a star just because you talked me down. Um, when <laughs> I disagree, it's really interesting because I started off this... I just couldn't believe how good this movie is. I couldn't believe how good... Yeah this movie was and the issues that it explored and and the how emotional it was and how tragic it was the it was so tragic and it was so sad and it I just really loved it I just think this movie is a horror masterpiece um now that was my choice that was my Halloween choice for Halloween 
spooky. Next week, next week we go on to finish our slasher thing. Then it's your choice. Happy death day. What is our next movie, Abby? Tell me. We are finally, it's been a while since we've been in space. So we're going back to space and we're finally doing The Martian. I haven't, yes, I haven't seen it. Matt Damon. I haven't seen it. Um, yeah. I'm really excited to watch it. I like, I missed it. I missed it in the cinemas and then I didn't have an excuse. I think you're going to be really down for the science and what happens in it. I think you're going to be down for the movie itself. Um, I tried to wait because there's some, there's going to, you're going to see some kind of throwbacks and similarities to Moon. So I did try to wait a while before we kind of covered this. So there was a, a good gap, but um, I'm very happy and excited to be doing it. So yay! All right. Well, I'm really excited to watch that. And I think all of our Satins out there, you should find The Martian, watch The Martian, join us back here in two weeks' time. And then in between that, you can catch us with our little mini-sode on Happy Death Day to round out our slasher at the movie series. So thanks for listening. If you'd like to get in contact, you can email us on science at the movies at gmail.com or catch us on Instagram at science at the movies. We also have our Twitter account, which is movies underscore science. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Alice and Bob. Yeah, whatever. <laughs>